0: If you invited me over for tacos, I would know how good your tacos are. Well, we'll invite you over. <laughs> yes. Okay. You heard that. Okay, Rachel's going to invite me over it's for tacos. Because uh, okay, you oh, don't know this. As a listener, Rachel, uh, she talks about how good her tacos are all the time at home. Yeah. Like, all the time. <laughs> this is unfair. And then, I, and then I'm just like, well, yeah, when am I going to? And you're yeah. just like, never. All right, just
1: <laughs> so she's
0: saying she's going to invite me over
1: okay. well, for we'll tacos. Move.
0: This is Charles.
1: And this is Rachel.
0: From b Radio, this is Design Goggles. Architects sketch early and often in the design process, and we imagine people in the environments we create. We draw spaces, imagining how people might use them, stairs to places we hope people want to be, and places to sit in areas where they might need some rest. But at some point, the rubber meets the road. Construction will be complete, and we find out if people really use the spaces we created the way we imagined. The results can be thrilling when people are comfortable in these places, and other times, not so much. History is filled with designers telling people how to live, and just as much with people living however they please, no matter what designers say. This conflict between the creators of space and the people who inhabit those spaces goes on today. Is that tension productive? Are designers and architects learning the lessons of yesterday, or just repeating them? Do any of us really know how people will use the spaces we create even with the best of intentions? To answer those questions and more, I'm joined by my co-host Rachel Scott, and we're going to break it all down. Rachel, (laughs) thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Three or four weeks ago, I met with a client of ours who we completed his building a while ago. And there was one particular area that we designed in his building that was kind of like this lounge space. And it was kind of a big risk. We were spending all this money in this lounge and we had this big expensive banquette and this big fireplace. And the whole time we were working on the building years, I was like really, really nervous that we would put in all this effort and just people wouldn't want to be there. And he let me know, he came by and he was just like, oh my gosh, people are always there, they love it. And it was satisfying on a level, but there was this huge wave of relief that washed over me, and I hadn't even realized the anxiety that just sat in the back of my mind about the design process and when we design, how nerve-wracking it can be to hope people use the places we make the way we wanted them to. And I kind of realized that was a conflict, that when we design, no matter how much we like to say we don't, we're telling people what to do. We're designing a big bench to tell people to sit there, that they're supposed to sit there in a simple sense.
1: I guess. I mean, or you're making a suggestion. It's not that you are saying you must sit here.
0: No, I'm not. It's more
1: like you're creating a scenario where someone might be like, oh, I think I might sit there.
0: So that's a very simple, straightforward example. Because, I mean, a bench or a seat, it's not that it's low risk. You can certainly design seating that no one ever uses. But no one is going to be like, gosh, this is the place you gave me to sit. This is ruining my day or it's, it's breaking down the, the whole function of this space. Mm-hmm. But I started to think and remember some of the cases in larger scale architectural design where architects designed campuses or even cities mm-hmm. and tried to tell people how to live and how badly that worked out <laughs> yeah. and started to realize that there's this fundamental tension in what we do. Even for single-family clients, people that just want a home where we have a lot of information about who they are and how they live. And then sometimes in larger semi-public or public spaces where we're designing for a crowd and we have no idea.
1: You know, the other thing that's kind of interesting about what you're saying is the timeline. That's kind of inherent to architects and designers of physical spaces is that you have to sit there and be nervous about whether or not they're going to sit on that bench for a whole lot longer than if you were designing something that was going to go from the point of you coming up with the idea to the execution of it Mm -hmm. than other fields of design where that is a lot shorter of a timeline. Right. So you have more time to worry about it.
0: 100%. There's some areas of design where they don't have to worry about it at all. I read a little bit about UX and how basically people just get what you get. You get the buttons and the paths that you get, and you don't typically have a choice. And if you do get a choice, it's because someone decided you get those choices. But, like, you know, when you're making space, people have a lot more agency over how they use a space versus how a user uses an app or any interactive software. It's like well, completely I mean, you opposite. You
1: can make whatever buttons you want.
0: Right. But the user can't. The user can't decide they want a different button. Unless, that's what I'm saying. But
1: they can't decide they want a different bench, like the bench is there.
0: Oh, they absolutely can.
1: Oh, you mean like if it's their house?
0: If it's their house or even in a city, people sit where they sit.
1: Okay, but then so if, people it's, sit on if curbs it's their website, on- they can decide what buttons they want. If it's their house, they can swap the bench out. But if it's a website that's not theirs, then, yeah, they get to use the buttons that are provided to them. And if it's a public space, they get to use the bench that's provided to them. I keep
0: thinking about this app. I want to say it was a couple of years ago. It was a texting app that only had five buttons. Mm-hmm. And it was ridiculously popular for a while. And there was only five things you could say.
1: Oh, like you didn't even get to write your own Correct. things? <laughs> and it was
0: really popular. And it was a texting app. And that was it. It was like there are five buttons.
1: So like five things you could communicate, like I'll be there shortly. Yeah, Although it was probably like be there soon. Yeah, it was something
0: like <laughs> casual versions of the five most popular things anyone said. It was like over text, up. kind of. It was <laughs> like that. I remember, and I remember like for a couple years, it was one of the most used texting apps. People eventually got sick of it. It was also, I think, a little bit before speech-to-text got any good. Because mm-hmm. in the beginning, it was not good. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of an aside, the UX thing. And we can come back to it. But the architecture thing was fascinating. And the first thing I did was go back to something I remembered from school. Mm-hmm. Because the big failure we got taught in this category was Chandigarh, which I, we've actually mentioned on a previous episode, which was a city in India that Corbusier designed the entire mm-hmm. city and how essentially it's a complete and utter failure. And it is an example held up in academia of what happens when architects decide on a large scale how people will live their lives Mm -hmm. and an example of how people as a society will do whatever they do without necessarily any rhyme or reason to the efficiency of space Mm -hmm. or ideal views or ideal traffic. Like it doesn't matter. You have some power, but it's much more limited than Corb assumed and sometimes that we assume as designers.
1: Well, so part of me wants to say, well, how much of the architect's ego plays into this? Because There is an entirely different profession for designing cities, and that's not what architects do. And so every time these architects decide, I'm going to design an entire urban environment, of course they fail because Mm -hmm. they don't understand it. They're not trained for that. They just think they can because they have gigantic egos about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Totally fair point. So let's take it down a scale to a small public building or even a single family home.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it's funny, we're going to go through a little bit more of my research process in this (laughs) one because where this search string took me got really interesting. I started reading a little bit about Corb because there was a great book about Corbusier's Chandigarh failure. And there's a bunch of these hypercritical books, Mm -hmm. some of which really justified. Like now we know today that Corbusier was a Nazi sympathizer and a not all-around nice person. We're going to put that aside because that's a completely different burrito. But what I landed on was an article about how based on all of the verbal accounts of his behavior and his own journals, he was very likely on the autism spectrum. His design aesthetic and his theories were brilliant, but also a product of his mental challenge is mental illness. There was a fascinating image. It was an eye-tracking heat map, and it was a heat map of a simple single-family home that had some design flourishes in the facade and some Corinthian columns, and it had a bunch of interesting things going on in the facade. And on two copies of this image, on the left side, a heat map showed where a person without autism looks on this home. Mm -hmm. And that heat map showed all of the focus on all of the flourishes and the interesting places where all the, you know, materials met and the interesting window mullions. And on the right was a heat map of the same image where someone on the autism spectrum looks. Mm -hmm. And it's just this tiny little corner in the bottom left of the home where the home meets the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Nothing outside on the rest of the details of the home. And the article, without any real more data than that, postulated something that I found really fascinating. That modern architecture could be a byproduct of brilliant but autistic designers designing in a way that was so new and different because it was more featureless Mm -hmm. and because it was more featureless it produced less anxiety Mm -hmm. and it was bold and interesting and new but not for the reasons we thought which is amazing i thought now that's all well and good and super fascinating (laughs) what a great little thing to have in the back of your mind for like trivia at the bar except (laughs) then i started to think about this i love modern design You and I talk about modern design all the time. Mm -hmm. We don't do that 24-7. We do plenty of traditional stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, you know, there's no invalid design aesthetic. However, I started to really challenge whether or not, you know, modern design is good for people. Mm -hmm. Period. And whether or not modern design in general is even ethical. (laughs) And I was just like, are we designing a sadder world? Like, I find featureless sometimes more beautiful. My aesthetic is much closer to that. My stuff at home is clean line. I mean, you've, you've been in my place. My stuff is mostly clean lines, some angled stuff here and there. It's not hyper minimal, but it's very contemporary. Mm-hmm. That's something we're criticized for a lot as designers. And maybe we've been indoctrinated more than I thought.
1: Mm-hmm. What about brutalist architecture?
0: Another good question. Well, it does feature clean lines. Mm-hmm.
1: What is the etymology of brutalist? That's a good question. Because, I mean, it sounds well, it is like lo- a criticism in the name itself, but maybe I don't know. Oh, it's it's, it's
0: heavy and oppressive, but not maximalist. Yeah. God, we're having a really esoteric show today. <laughs> wow. It's so funny. We talk so, so much so about, like, go- like, we're so inclusive and we want to bring design to the masses. And now we're just like, let's talk about every esoteric <laughs> uh, aesthetic movement that you want. So if you're still listening, these are great <laughs> things to Google. Maximalism and brutalism. Brutalism features a lot of big, heavy structures, a lot of cast in place concrete, mm-hmm. and typically non elegant detailing. Maximalism usually is different in the way that it does feature elegant detailing. However, it is also heavy and sometimes oppressive, depending.
1: But see, people that are big fans of brutalist architecture might take offense to you saying that it's got inelegant detailing, right?
0: It's definitely a subjective term. These are opinions. Absolutely. I mean, Um, it's hard
1: to feel good hanging out in the brutalist courtyard, mm, in my opinion. Yeah. There are definitely even people in this office who would absolutely disagree with me.
0: Yeah. I think that's healthy. Yeah. The disagreement. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, brutalist architecture gets a bad rap. It was heavily utilized, as you might imagine, by fascist regimes in Italy. (laughs) (laughs) And it was definitely used as a political tool once upon a time. It isn't any longer. So
1: has a lot of other different types of, like, neoclassical architecture. Yeah. Very popular with the Nazis.
0: Oh, very true. But some of, like, for instance, Louis Kahn really famous architect who worked mostly in concrete. Mm-hmm. Some of his stuff could be considered brutalist, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. Usually in the conversations I've had and heard about brutalism, it hinges mostly on how much concrete is used mm-hmm. and like how heavy and how big and how mm-hmm. seamless those forms are.
1: I mean, a lot of the times it seems like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be able to back up this thought. but I'm going to play it out and see how it goes it seems like any one of these paths followed too closely, like too true to the you know supposed ideal aesthetic of the particular design aesthetic is, if you follow it too closely, there's so much more room for error in that, right? Some people would be celebrating, oh, you followed modern design or brutalism or whatever to the T, and it's a beautiful example of that type of design. But so often it seems like following anything that closely puts you in this box where you, in fact, are forgetting about what it is really like to be in that space. Like, you're following the rules so closely that you forgot that what you're really doing is building a space for people or for animals or, you know, whoever. You're building something that is not supposed to be in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And that really the richness of the design comes when maybe you you pick a thing and you, and you kind of play off it and you riff a little and you, and you work with the context around and then the people that might be there. And, and there's a much more richness to be had if you don't make yourself follow all these particular rules without ever allowing yourself any creativity to stray from that path.
0: Yes. I would argue the way a brutalist building makes you feel isn't always inappropriate and isn't always negative. Brutalist architecture, for instance, to be used to design a bank mm-hmm. could be a really positive thing. If something is big and oppressive and feels immovable and safe, what's within at least? That can be a positive thing and make sense. But
1: then do you want to go hang out there and have your... Uh... No,
0: but there's like, <laughs> I'm using a tool in my toolbox in an appropriate way.
1: Chase might disagree with you.
0: <laughs> no, Chase definitely does. <laughs> but once, you know, there were some some brutalist banks, actually. Don't don't get me started on. Don't get me started on Chase Bank. Yeah, what episode episode is that? Oh my god. Yeah, (laughs) if you if you're new to the show, go back and listen to the episode we did with Chris Guillot, where I literally get apoplectic about a Chase Bank commercial. But anyway, but
1: but but also it wasn't Chase Bank.
0: (laughs) It turned yeah. If you go to the episode, you'll find out. So brutalism is one example. Another example of modern architecture not necessarily being maybe even a good thing. I was talking about who was it? Another coworker with London about London. Mm -hmm. about design in London. I actually once considered moving there before I moved to Seattle, actually. I have a a good buddy there who lives there and loves it. I'm actually part British, and I love hanging out there, (laughs) and I considered going and getting a job there. And their architecture is very much a product of post-World War II. It was bombed to high hell by the Germans. There wasn't much left and the aesthetic evolved of high-tech steel and glass structures, Mm -hmm. minimal design, because it was in a way a reflection of the psychology of the (laughs) British people after being bombed. But I think it's just, it's a clear response to this is new and a stark contrast with what's old and what's gone. Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely an acknowledgement of what's not there anymore Mm -hmm. on a basic level. However, Mm -hmm. the featurelessness of it, as beautiful as I might personally find it because I'm a designer, maybe that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not good for people. Like, I really have started to question the ethics of clean lines and the ethics of pure geometric forms, all the stuff that we associate with modern design.
1: Well, so I want to see what people do. Maybe somebody has studied this. I don't know. I haven't looked it up. Okay, so let's imagine we're doing a study about this and we have some statistically relevant number of uh, living spaces that are all really modern, very clean lines, very stark. Mm -hmm. And then we have the same amount of something that has more nuance in the design and we'll have various sets that we look at. And then you have populations of people move into these places and then you study what do they do when they are left to their own devices in there. How many of them make a point of everything that they add to the space, like all the stuff that they come with. Like maybe you even give them a... Like, it's not, maybe it's not their personal stuff to start. Maybe you give them a budget of you can buy all the furniture and all the decor and everything you want. And also, you can bring anything that you already own, whatever you want. But you make it so that people can personalize the space and Mm -hmm. you take out of the equation, you know, a lack of means or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How many people in which type of space that they're in diverge from it? Because, I mean, in my own experience, in the places that I've lived, we were very particular about our space and it means a lot to us. And every single thing that is in there is considered. But the stuff that we have, and this is like over years of moving from place to place collecting and having storage units and being like, we need to cull some stuff. What are the things that really matter? So Mm -hmm. at this point, everything that we own is all in one place now. And for years, I had like stuff stored in one city, stuff at other places, you know, like for years, I felt like I just got to get everything in one place. And through that process, you go through this system of culling. And so everything that we have has a meaning to it. And anything that doesn't have a meaning to it is purely functional and it serves a particular purpose in the moment and might be replaced when something better comes along, but it's serving a very particular function. Mm-hmm. And where that ends up is a sort of softer version of a modern lines, but with personal touches that make it much more hybridized. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a mixture of what we would call traditional design stuff with modern design and real clean lines mixed together. It's very much a hybrid situation. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how much hybridization would you get in that study? If you looked at it? Would there be kind of a big realm of people humanizing things and softening and basically finding kind of a middle ground between the space that they were presented with? Like if I were to move into a place that has like super crazy traditional trim and Corinthian columns and blah blah blah, like I would be definitely inclined to populate it with much more modern clean line stuff to strike a balance. I don't really want to be fully in one side or the other, there's this like richer middle ground that I feel more comfortable in.
0: And which is a personal preference, right? Sure. Because some people want to just be surrounded in opulence and that's what they're, not even opulence, but- um, Gilded everything. Yeah, yeah, no. (laughs) yeah. A good example is, uh, there's a lot of Roman and William spaces like that. The more they do, the more impressed I am because they work in all sorts of different aesthetics. But like, for instance, their claim to fame, actually, this is Mm -hmm. the most random fact ever, is they did the set design, For the movie Hocus Pocus. Like back in the 90s? Nicole Kidman. and Witches? Yeah. They did the set design for that movie, which basically (laughs) began the trend that we now live in of all white homes with factory style windows, ivy everywhere, and tons of decoration, but in like this tasteful curated way. And they've done everything else, but that isn't necessarily modern or traditional, Mm -hmm. but it is busy and has a lot of character. Definitely not clean lines and definitely not hyper-modern. What you're describing to me, the way I perceived it, is sort of a scale between Mm -hmm. softer details and harder details, essentially. Mm -hmm. As you have softer, somewhat traditional details and some clean lines, and you put those together. And for you, that strikes a comfortable balance. Mm -hmm. But then there's this whole other level of true minimalism versus decor and decoration also. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, our space is definitely not minimalist. Mm -hmm. It's curated. Not in a minimalist way, I suppose, like because you can curate anything, sure. (laughs) I see you laughing over there. (laughs) I I was just like, Um. Welcome to my
0: home. I didn't pick any of
1: this. (laughs) That's true for some people. It is, it is. But it's funny, like, even
0: then, it's probably curated.
1: Even just like walking to, like, you know, like if you live in a building where, you know, like every now and then you walk down the hall, you can, like, somebody happens to have their door open, you can kind of peek in. Yeah. You know, you do like that thing. Love that. rubbernecking you're just like oh my god because all these units have similar floor plans and so it's really interesting to see how other people set up their space Mm -hmm. it's like they had the same Mm -hmm. canvas to work on and this is what they did and usually we're like oh man
0: yeah (laughs) Uh
1: uh-huh i mean we've had time and we're designers and we've had years to iterate right yeah it's not like we had some budget to work with so it was never really like a make this space what you want. It was like, this is the stuff that we own. Sure. Let's see what happens.
0: And for us, like we and obviously intimately know how we ourselves live. And when we do single family stuff, it's a little more straightforward. Architects certainly help single family clients translate what they already know about their lives Mm -hmm. into what they need to know about their current space and their new space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even that goes off the rails sometimes, but less often. People know what they like to look at when they wake up in the morning, or not look at. Simple stuff like that.
1: Some people. I
0: would say many, especially if they're engaging an architect, they've maybe thought about this stuff before.
1: Or they realize that they don't know how to think about it. But I right. Need to hire more, tell I think. think
0: right. About it. <laughs> more in my brain, more of the ethical problems happen when I approach buildings that will be used in a semi-public way or a public yeah. way. I haven't done a ton kind of true public buildings, hospitals, schools. I'm actually eager to have a show all about schools because that's a whole other thing. But for a semi-public building like an apartment building or something Mm -hmm. like that, a branded space even, of course, we want to make a a space that works for the client. In an apartment building, that might mean not only something they can market and sell, but something that makes sense on a pro forma basis. And unfortunately, maybe even third down that rung, a place that truly serves people well. Mm -hmm. With a branded space, same thing. They want everybody to be comfortable in their space to be a potential customer guest visitor. God, I really start to worry about, in a way, my own prejudice for modern design. I still do believe, even after all this research, that there's huge advantages and that it's beautiful and that it's adaptable, because humans aren't these static things, their own wants and needs change. And I feel like clean spaces are much more adaptable.
1: Right, but people don't necessarily have the tools. So like, that's why I love a clean modern space, because I know that I'm gonna go in there and have the tools it's like more of a blank canvas. Mm-hmm. So I find that attractive because I'm like, oh, wonderful. I can mm-hmm. do whatever I want in here. Mm-hmm. You know, I can keep it super minimalist or I can introduce whatever I want. I can go full, plants everywhere, whatever I want to do. You can do whatever you want. It's like a blank canvas.
0: Right. I think it depends on your context. Because if you put an I.M.P.E. white box building or Tata something really minimal, uh-huh. In the middle of old Rome, <laughs> I mean, which is more distracting? I would say the white box is pretty distracting, not the rest of the opulent buildings. I think well, yeah, it's totally see, if dependent it on context. That
1: context. Then I'm like, oh, I love. Because then when I'm zoomed out to that level, I've got that balance that I want. I have this little object, this little jewel box of a modern project within an ancient city that's that balance that I love. Is that a balance? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you you balance it right and how zoomed in or not zoomed (laughs) in you are, yeah, Yeah. it's all in the frame of view, right? Everybody goes through a time in their life, maybe when you move to a new city, you don't know anybody or something, you're not dating anyone. It seems like most people go through a period in, in their life where they realize that like maybe they haven't even literally touched anybody else. Nobody even like shook their hand or accidentally bumped into them, you know, on the street or something. Mm -hmm. I think humans have this thing where they realize if that's occurred. So this has occurred in my life in various points where I'm just like, I don't know anyone. I'm in a foreign place and time passes. And then something happens where like somebody touches my shoulder or accidentally bumps into me. And then you have this like little human thing that's like, oh, my God, uh, another human just touched me and I haven't noticed that in a while. Hmm. I guess what I'm trying to do is compare that idea to what we're talking about with spaces and that if you...
0: Sounds like you're talking about contrast and sensitivity.
1: Yeah. And so like if you... Almost
0: sensory deprivation in a way.
1: Yeah. And sensory deprivation can be good and beneficial and therapeutic. Make you appreciate, yeah. and It's like if you have your...
0: To quote our earlier conversation, if you have tacos for dinner every night, you might not appreciate tacos after a while. It's just tacos again.
1: But they might be but different tacos. If you
0: but if you're like, I'm going on a one month long taco moratorium, that first taco you have next month, that's gonna be a good tasting taco.
1: Even if it actually was a bad example yes. of a taco. Yes,
0: exactly. Cause you had a taco moratorium.
1: Okay. We should definitely do like taco metaphors for everything. <laughs> what was I thinking? Trying to be like human touch and experience. We should have <laughs> yeah, just,
0: we just went straight to tacos. <laughs> it's kind of the answer always.
1: Okay. Anyway. Taco metaphors. <laughs> Total
0: aside. <laughs>
1: Just follow us on Taco Metaphors. There's
0: this poke place <laughs> in Columbia City here in Seattle, which I'm mm-hmm. totally going to plug called okay. Sam Choice Poke to the Max.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Hawaiian poke place. They make poke tacos that are soft shell taco, hummus, mm-hmm. hard shell taco. What? Poke. Oh. It's incredible. I'm so
1: confused. Yes. But it sounds delicious. It is
0: one of the most satisfying taco experiences you will ever have.
1: So you have the freshness, you have the crunch. You have the softness, both in the soft fish, but in the soft taco. But you that crunch is crucial. Yes. You really like yep. diversity of textures yep. is key. Yep. And see, this is why taco metaphors work for everything. Yeah, that's right. Because it's you contrast. Gotta have the mix. You gotta have some modern design and some traditional. You but just more on the balance. record. I
0: think that's the best taco in Seattle. <laughs> anyway, that does prove the point. So the answer is that taco. That's the answer. I'm imagining like what someone listening to this show would think. I feel like this particular subject could also, even though I didn't have a chance because we needed to record tonight, didn't have a chance to like really go out and ask a bunch of people to do this particular show to be our guest. Mm -hmm. But I was super curious at what someone who is very indoctrinated into modern design, how they would react. I feel like I've become less so over time It totally depends on the interesting trajectory of your unique career. Mm -hmm. It's like if you are further away from your clients, and no value judgment on that, good or bad, I don't think there's necessarily a thing. It's just... Some projects, especially bigger projects, you're far further from your client. And so you get to focus a little more on an overall geometry, an overall thing a vision, a larger vision. And at the same time, have even more responsibility.
1: But then that disconnect from your client is allowing you to forget about the experience of actually being in there.
0: That's the kind of person I would really love to pick their brain about this.
1: Okay, and then we should also ask them what kind of taco they want. Because (laughs) what would a minimalist taco be? Would it be good? Would you want
0: it? Great question. If you stay with the culinary metaphor, there are, you know, a bunch of High design restaurants that serve you tiny little yes. morsels of food that are trying to focus on individual flavors and they're talking about a specific
1: Yes, absolutely. Thing. And you can pull that off really, really, really well. Right. So okay. however,
0: after those places, typically you go out and then get actual food <laughs> and you I mean, eat you and do. you're starving. I do. <laughs> I mean, and I love those places and I go to them sometimes, but afterwards I'm just like, so where are we getting burgers now? Because I'm like, <laughs> Starving.
1: Yeah, like the minimalist taco is actually just sauce. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like a little pool of hot sauce on a dish. (laughs) What was that? Maybe it's Uh, like aesthetically. Was that movie
0: with uh, (laughs) Tina Fey and um, Greg Kinnear where they go to this like vegan raw restaurant and instead of bread, they're offered a yeast ball. <laughs> yeah, and they know. get this <laughs> ball of unleavened, uncooked dough, <laughs> as and they like pick it apart, and they're just like, "Oh, it's very chewy." Mm. Yeah. Like, that would be a minimalist anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a a perfect example of how you can take anything too far, right? Mm -hmm, For sure. Anything.
0: And there are spaces where that's totally appropriate, especially in memorials, spaces of contemplation, places of worship. I'm not at all arguing that, like, minimalism has no place in architecture. I'm questioning the indoctrination now. You know, we're kind of taught, I don't mean to speak for you, but most architects are taught in school that modern contemporary architecture is ethically moral essentially that a free plan you know all of the basics of modern architecture are good for people on a small scale good for people on a large scale better for the earth these so are I things think we're that taught
1: that is very much based on the school where you are taught because that wasn't entirely the education that i got hmm. it was very much human centered hmm. and much more questioning of all of that oh well, that's nice to hear yeah I mean, there were certainly professors that espoused that, Mm -hmm. but they were really the minority. The education, this is done at the University of Oregon. Their program is very much about the human experience cool. and what it's like to be in a space. And, you know, there's a spectrum. It's almost like there should be an exchange program between different architecture schools and that students should be required to go experience the different pedagogies of architecture education in that way, because I think that there's... (laughs) <laughs> Here I am like being like, balance is everything. There is so much value in all those things. And I think it's really easy to accidentally fall too far into one side mm-hmm. and then the other. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to find one that you feel that you relate to more or something, or or maybe you have a particular affinity to one or, or there's a particular professor that is so charismatic about it or something. It's easy for people to form into these camps of, oh, this is the belief system that I think is the best one and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That is common in academia, I think. And then in this world, a lot of that gets carried along, I think, into the profession. You get groups of people that feel like this way of thinking is the way.
0: So the question remains, do designers and architects tell people how to live?
1: Yeah. And should they? Do we all the time? Do we tell them?
0: Mm -hmm. Do our designs instruct?
1: I mean, I don't think so. I mean, if I were to get on my soapbox about this, it would be, maybe I'll take this back. But (laughs) let's see. What I want to say is that really good designers would figure out ahead of time with their clients whether or not that particular client wants to be told how to live or is sharing with the designer, you know, this is what my life is like. This is what I do. These are the things like I live my life. How can we design a space that works with how I exist in the world? You know, everybody has different levels of awareness of how they like to live and the spaces they like to experience. And there are absolutely people and it's not a negative thing. There are people that want to be put in a space where things will work for them and they, they just do not have the brain space to figure it out for themselves. Like their brains just work in different ways and they don't understand why the space that they are living in doesn't work for them. Maybe they feel uncomfortable, maybe they don't. Maybe they're not even aware of it. Mm-hmm. And a good designer might be able to come in and be like, hey, you can come into a space. And we don't do this really. At least I haven't had the opportunity to do this is to go to a, let's say it's a homeowner scenario, to actually come in and do an assessment. I think this happens more with commercial spaces, but it'd be really interesting if this happened with residential, like single family residential spaces, where you come in and you look at the existing scenario and you actually do not a real forensic, but kind of a forensic look assessment of what's there. You're looking at things like the physical evidence around where somebody has been living that gives away the way that they live. I'm thinking of things like in their kitchen, maybe there's the table where they eat breakfast at. Along the wall, the paint is smudged and dragged because the chair that they sit in all the time bumps into the wall all the time, and now the whole wall is messed up. And so going there and looking at them be like, okay, so it, it appears that the way that you live your life, this space is not big enough for you because your chair always hits this wall. Or you see that there's a Damage on the floorboards next to the sink because when they dry their hands, there was no place nearby where the towel was. And so they're always like reaching across this thing. And so there's a little water damage on the floor where they're always reaching and dripping a little bit onto the floor. So, like, basically doing an analysis of the space to see how do you really live and Mm -hmm. what about how you're living is problematic. And maybe you had no idea, and you had no idea, but we could design this to be better for how you actually That's really live. That's
0: interesting. That's really interesting, actually. It's sort of like, and it, this is going to be a, a future episode, it's self-tracking. I, wanna, I want there
1: to be, like, a CSI in Miami, like, like, I put my sunglasses on now, and I'm like,
0: yeah! Yeah, yeah, this totally aligns with an episode I've wanted to do for a while in the future about self-tracking. About oh, how yeah. the collecting of our data is changing our perception of how we have been living, and also possibly wagging the dog and mm-hmm. changing the way we live because now we're aware.
1: Yeah. No, I want to go in and like, analyze thing. somebody else's life. <laughs> yeah, not mine. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I, I to know <laughs> that what you're doing. No, I do want to analyze. I always want to analyze myself. But I want to go, like, into a place and be like, I can see what's happening here based on what I see in your environment. And we can design this to be better. Perfect. I mean, it sounds creepy, but it it would, it would, it would be beneficial.
0: <laughs> I <laughs> Beneficial agree. creepy. So so we're going to upcoming taco show, self-tracking show, self-tracking
1: taco show. Self-tracking tacos. (laughs) Sure.
0: Awesome.
1: You're going to swallow this like (laughs) microchip.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On that note, thanks, Rachel, for sitting with me to talk about this one. This is a tough one. And actually, hopefully we can get somebody from the outside. I would love two people, actually. Someone who's outside the design field. Fascinated with design and then somebody who's like really deep in the high design part yes. of the profession. So if that's you, email me, charles at com or rachel at bordermellum.com if you uh if you have something to say about this particular episode because I want to do a follow-up. I think it'd be a lot of fun if you came on. So do that. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, check out our blog on BoredOnVellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. Also on BoredOnVellum.com, we just created the Design Goggles dedicated page. All the episodes are on there. You can listen to them there. Also, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast, whether it's iHeartRadio or Spotify or iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever. It's super awesome to get to hear from you if you listen to our show. Tell us we're awesome. Tell us we suck. Totally up to you. <laughs> And as always, please stop on by Boredom Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.